Good morning, once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7? This morning we find ourselves in Matthew 7 in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. A section that really is uh, at the end of a three-chapter section known as the Sermon on the Mount. which runs from chapters 5 through 7. And as we come to this last portion, Jesus gets very practical. Now let me just... Let me just set the message up this morning by saying this to you. If you were to go out onto the streets to begin to survey people as to whether or not they believed that when they died they would go to heaven, out of those who believed in God in a place called heaven, I'm convinced that overwhelmingly they would say yes. I mean, they would probably tell you that although they knew they weren't perfect, they still believed that they were basically good people and therefore, yes, God would accept them into heaven when they died. Now, I know that you'd probably get that from the majority of the people that you would talk to. I know it because I've gotten it from the majority of the people that I've talked to over the years. That when you go out there and you talk to people and you you ask them that question, uh, almost always they will say that, yes, uh, I know I'm not perfect, but I still believe I'm good enough to make it into heaven when I die. Well, you know, it's reminiscent of what the writer of the Proverbs said in Proverbs 30, verse 12, where he said, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, but it has not been washed from its filthiness. Well, I don't know what generation he was talking to, but we're seeing it today. I'm not saying there was never a generation before this, uh, but this is definitely a generation that has not been washed from its filthiness, but everybody thinks they're a good person. Proverbs 16.25, we read, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it's the way of death. And in Jeremiah 10, verse 23, we read, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Without divine direction, divine light, which is God's truth, a man, woman, no matter how sincere they are in wanting to find God, is going to grope around in spiritual darkness, following a way that may seem right, but in the end it will lead to death. I mean, look... Every cult in the world thinks that they have the light, right? Every cult in the world thinks that they're the only ones who've got the light, all right? We're the only ones who've got truth. Everybody else is messed up but us, all right? Every cult out there, in fact, every cult, every religious group, they all think they have the light that will light your way to God. But as John opened his gospel, he said of the Lord Jesus Christ, He was the true light. He was the true light that gives light to every man, every person coming into the world. And since Jesus Christ is the only true light, look, all we need to do is go to him to find out what he said about getting into heaven, right? What did he say? Well, he said that to get into heaven, a person would have to be morally sinless or perfect. Now, that kind of floored his disciples. Not kind of, it did. It floored his disciples. Of course, they were floored most of the time anyway, so it wasn't a big deal. I mean, their mouths were hanging open, you know, dragging on the ground most of the time when he taught because it was so against what they were used to hearing, all right? But when the Lord said that, to get into heaven, you have to be perfect, the disciples said, well, then, Lord, who can possibly be saved? Well, Matthew 19, 26, he said, well, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, God is perfect, and he cannot have fellowship with anyone who is not perfect. And therefore, he demands perfection from those he accepts into heaven. See, that was a a big part of why he gave this sermon. To teach people about the righteousness that will get you into heaven. See, how do you get into heaven? Well, Jesus is explaining it here and in other places in the Gospels. 
But God is perfect. He cannot have fellowship with imperfection. Therefore, only those who are perfect make it into heaven. You say, that's impossible. That's what the disciples said. That's why Jesus said, with men it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, don't forget, Jesus Christ was coming against the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees, who were the false teachers of their day. They were the ones telling people how to get... They were the epitome of religious self-righteousness. These were the guys that based all their worthiness to make it into heaven upon the fact that they had meticulously kept rituals and religious ceremonies and all the laws given in their particular faith, Judaism, even to the point where they tithed to God out of their herb gardens. Can you imagine? Okay, I got my little herb plant. I'm going to knock off ten seeds and I'm going to count nine out for me and give one to God. And they must have felt, boy, who else does this but us? All right? Nobody does this. Nobody keeps the law like we do. Boy, are we righteous. And yet Jesus dropped a bombshell on their concept of righteousness when he said to his disciples in Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even make it into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus gave this sermon in part to show us the error of thinking. We could be good enough to make it into heaven on our own, basically. All right? I'll just read you some of these verses. You can just write them down. Matthew 5.48, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In John chapter 3, verse 13, talking to a, another Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a, de- a decent guy. Not all the Pharisees were hypocrites. Most of them were. There was a few, though, that had a real heart for God. And so one of these guys was Nicodemus. He comes to the Lord by night one time and you know, starts talking to the Lord about eternal life. And, and, and Jesus said something to him that we should, we should never forget. This applies to all religious people. He said, Nicodemus, nobody ever ascended to heaven. In other words, nobody ever worked their way into heaven through religious observances and ceremonies and rituals and good works, etc. In other words, religion ain't going to get you there. How do I get there, Lord? The Son of Man has come down. The Son of Man has come down to live the life that you and I could not live. He died a death that we could not have died. He was the sinless Lamb of God who died for sinners. In fact, Paul the Apostle said in Romans 3, verse 23, All have sinned and have fallen short of God's perfect standard. All have sinned. And he went on to say the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, and Paul says this very clearly in the book of Romans. He said, the kind of righteousness that gets us into heaven is not our own righteousness based on our works because we are imperfect guys. I don't care how hard you try to live for God. Uh, We are never going to be perfect in this life. And therefore, if God requires sinless perfection to get into heaven, guess what? We are out of luck. But that's why Jesus came down. He was the sinless Lamb of God who died for sinners, providing us a way by which we might get to God apart from our own self-righteous works, but based on His absolutely righteous life. And now as He has resurrected, ascended back to His Father, if you put your faith in Him, He will take His righteousness, perfection, apply it to your account, and you will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ And that's how we get into heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is presenting God's standard of true righteousness, which alone can gain us access into heaven, correct? 
And by doing this, what he was trying to do was break us of self-effort. Because, you know, inherent in all of us, we have this desire to show God, maybe nobody else can get there by their good works, but I, I can do it. You know, and, and Jesus is trying to, to lay it out right up front and say, look, you know what, you will never get there through your own works because you'll never be perfect. So let's stop all the self-effort. Because self-effort breeds self-righteousness. And self-righteousness, guys, is a very dangerous thing. Why? Because even a small dose of self-righteousness, in other words, uh, righteousness based on what I do, is dangerous because it's inoculative. Just a little dose of self-righteousness can inoculate us from true righteousness. We don't think we need anything else. Hey, I go to church. You know, I keep the ceremonies of my church. I light the candles. I pray the rosary. I do whatever my church tells me to do. I do these things faithfully. Therefore, I'm right with God. They have self-righteousness, which has blinded them from true righteousness. Paul said of the Jews in Romans 10, verse 4, They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and running around trying to establish their own system of righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God in Christ. In other words, bottom line, you can be zealous, you can be religious, but you can also be very wrong. And we see that all over the place, don't we? As a Roman Catholic, I lived that for many years. Maybe you did too in your particular church. But see, Jesus was showing us it was impossible for us to live up to God's standard of true righteousness, which is perfection, to hopefully cause us to give up and abandon the notion that I can get into heaven by just simply trying my best to live a good life, quote-unquote. This then would cause me to look for another way to heaven. You know, and if you were a Jew, or I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and we were taught that it was always faith plus works that got us into heaven. So if that was your system that you grew up with, if you grew up believing that, look, to get into heaven, I have to be really good. Are you saying, Pastor, I shouldn't be good? No, I'm not. Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments. I'm just saying, if you think that by being really good, quote-unquote, is going to earn you salvation, guess again, because Jesus said to the rich young ruler, he said, you know what? There is no one good but God, right? The Bible defines goodness as moral perfection. Now, Jesus said to this rich young ruler, who was a religious guy, who asked him how to get into heaven, he said, no one is good but God. If he would have said, no one is as good as God, we could also, that's true. I mean, I'm not as good as God, but I think I'm still pretty good. I'm good enough to get into heaven. He says, no one is good but God. See, the kind of goodness that God talks about when he talks about goodness is moral perfection. And if we've all our lives thought we can work our way into heaven by our good deeds, religious rituals, and so on, well, once we come to realize, and this is what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to open our understanding to what it means, what it takes to get into heaven. Once we understand that it's not through our works, in all our lives maybe we based our, uh, our getting into heaven on what we did or our church affiliation or whatever it might be, and at one point we realize that's not going to get us there, well now I'm looking for another way, right? And there stands Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, these, in essence, are the two gates we've already talked about. These are the two gates that Jesus spoke of to introduce this final section in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in verse 13, he said, Enter by the narrow gate. What is the narrow gate? Well, the narrow gate is Jesus Christ in the gospel, right? He said, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. What's the broad gate? It's human effort. 
religious works, good deeds, etc. He said, but many go in the broad way because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and there are few who find it. So only the narrow gate leads to heaven. But notice Jesus said, only a few find it. Not many, but few. The many wind up somewhere else. The many wind up on the road to destruction, which is hell, of course. Now the question is, why do so many get deceived who are really looking for God? Well, the answer to that is in part because standing in front of these two gates are false prophets who are doing everything in their power to direct people through the wrong gate and down the wrong way. Jesus knew this better than anyone else, and so after he admonished his people to enter through the narrow gate, he quickly adds a warning in verses 15 to 20. In fact, verses 15 to 27 are built around two very important warnings. First of all, beware of false prophets, verses 15 to 20. And secondly, beware of false professions, verses 21 to 27. And that really brings us to our text this morning. As Jesus now moves from the danger of false prophets, which we've been looking at for the last few weeks, to now the danger of false professions. And listen, these are false professions that are rooted in self-deception. And in verses 21 to 23, Jesus presents the principle he wants to communicate. And then in verses 24 to 27, he gives a parable to illustrate the principle. All right, let's look at verses 21 to 23 first. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, folks, that's essentially the principle. Now, in verses 22 and 3, he expands on it. He said, Many will say to me in that day, which is the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. He is essentially saying, make sure you're not deceiving yourself. Are you really saved? Are you really born again? Are you really a member of God's kingdom? These are very piercing and probing questions. But either we ask ourselves these questions today while we still have a chance to change... Or we go on in blissful ignorance and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day and hear him say, wait, I never do. I mean, I believe the church today is flooded. And I'm not, I don't think I'm understating this. I think the church today is flooded with counterfeit Christians. You say, what do you mean? Well, these are people who have gone to church, maybe to a Christian concert or a crusade. They heard the gospel. They went forward when the altar call was given. They prayed a prayer to receive Jesus. But really, nobody really told them. Maybe they didn't listen carefully enough. Or maybe it wasn't really uh, explained to them what they were actually doing. Nobody explained to them, look, what you're doing is you're relinquishing all control of your life to a master now. You're no longer the master of your life if you receive Christ. He becomes your savior and master. He's the one who now has control of your life. A lot of times people go forward, uh, maybe they were moved emotionally, and they come up to the front weeping. You think, wow, the Lord's really gotten a hold of this person. Maybe. But you'd be surprised how much of it's just emotional. It's the emotion of the moment. There is no real brokenness. There's no real realization of sin. There's no real repentance. They go forward. They pray the prayer. They sign the card. They're given a Bible. And they're told, don't ever let the devil tell you from this day forward that you're not a Christian. Don't ever let the devil tell you you're not a Christian from this day forward. You know what? Who are we to tell somebody that they are really Christians when they pray that prayer? Can we see into the heart? 
do we know that they've really made a commitment to Christ? When we do that, we circumvent the work of the Holy Spirit. If they're not saved, it's not the devil telling them that they're not saved. It's the Holy Spirit telling them they're not saved. I don't want to get in between the work of God and a person that he's trying to really convict and convert. So I never say that to people. When people come up to pray to receive Christ, uh, I'm happy. I pray with them. But I don't get super joyful until I see what goes on over the next weeks and months. I want to see what's really, if they really were sincere about what they did. They really understood it. And I try to explain that to them when they come up to pray to receive Christ. I remember, oh, I think it was back in 1996, Luis Palau came out for a series of crusades. Now, a lot of the churches got together. We partnered and, and uh, we, we went for the pre-crusade classes about how to be uh, counselors and things. And I was one of those guys who went. And so, on the night of the crusades, it was our, when the altar call was given, we were supposed to move down from the seats onto the main floor and we had a little badge on, you know, and, and we were, to anybody who came forward to, to receive Christ, we were to pray with them, right? Well, because I knew that, you know, you, you have to probe a little bit, right? I mean, you just can't, I mean, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What does he say to him? Good master, what must I do to what? To receive eternal life. That's, that's a dream come true for, if you're a Christian. I mean, we, 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 we dream about that, all right? I mean, they're coming to you saying, look, I want to be saved. How do I do it? Oh, man. Just let's kneel right now and let's pray. I mean, wouldn't you have done that with the... I would have done that with the rich young ruler. Did Jesus do that? No, he probed him, didn't he? He had to probe a little bit to find out if he really understood what was involved. And you know how the story went. He didn't wind up receiving Christ because he had great wealth and his money was on the throne of his life. He wouldn't give it up. And Jesus Christ will not be co-Lord with something else in your life. If he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. He refuses to play that game. So it's not Jesus and your career. It's not Jesus and your whatever. It's either Jesus Christ or nothing. If you're going to receive him, he has to be everything. Okay? So I'm, one night of the crusade here, here, Luis gives the altar call, and I went down on the main floor. And here's this little gal about me, 19, 20 years old. And here she is ready to receive Christ, okay? Now, I could have just prayed with her, but I, I, I wanted to probe her a little bit. I said, okay, now listen, do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand why you've come down now? What, you know, what have you come down here to do? Oh, I want to receive Jesus. Okay. Do you understand what that means? Well, what do you mean? I said, well, you realize what you're doing is you're relinquishing all control of your life to Him now. You've been on the throne of your life, I mean, for all your life up to this point. You've been the master of your own ship, you might say, and all. But now, you are stepping down off the throne of your heart and letting Jesus take over. He's your new master. Now, you don't live for yourself anymore. It's all about His will, His desires, His agenda, His kingdom. It's not about what you want to do anymore. It's about what living your life for Him now. Do you understand that? And are you really ready to make that commitment? She stared at me for about 10 seconds and said, no, I'm not ready to do that. No, I didn't realize that. If I hadn't probed her, I would have prayed with her, send her off on her merry way thinking she was a Christian, and she really wasn't. So I prayed with her that God would keep working in her heart until she was ready to make that commitment. This is the thing that Jesus Christ is zeroing in on in this section. In fact, in these verses, Jesus makes one of the most shocking, sobering statements you'll find anywhere in the Bible. 
In fact, it's so shocking, if it hadn't come from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we would have been prone to dismiss it. I mean, if anybody else but Jesus had said this, we would not have believed it. In these verses, Jesus makes it very clear. It's not what we know about him or what we say about him, but listen, how we live for him that determines or demonstrates whether or not we're true members of the kingdom of God. Remember what Paul said to Titus, Titus 1.16? He said, there are many who profess to know God, but by their lives or by their works or their lifestyle, they deny him. There's a lot of professors in the body of Christ, but not all of them are possessors of eternal life. But they're out there. And remember that Jesus in verses 21 to 23, listen, he isn't talking about the irreligious or the quasi-religious. He's talking about the very religious. I mean, these aren't the atheists, the agnostics, the skeptics, the secularists. No, no, these are folks who are very religious, who go to church faithfully. But Jesus said, even though they're very religious, they're also very lost. You can be very religious and still be very lost. The scribes and Pharisees fit that bill to a T. These folks took the wrong road. It was a way that seemed right to them at the time. Maybe they grew up on that road. Some of us grew up in denominations. We were on the road when we got born. All right, That was the road our parents were walking. That was the group our parents belonged to. And we just followed right along with them. But these folks took the wrong road. It was a way that seemed right. But Jesus is here saying that he wants them to reevaluate the road that they're on. Because if it's the broad way, if it's a road of human achievement instead of divine accomplishment, then you know what? You're on the wrong way. It's not a way, although it's marked this way to God and heaven, it's not. It's going to lead you to hell. Only the narrow way is going to lead you to heaven. And you ask yourself, well, how could this have happened to them? I mean, how does it happen to anyone? Many people have been misled because of false prophets. Now, we've already defined false prophets as anyone who claims to speak on behalf of God. So you've got pastors, teachers, TV evangelists, etc. Anybody who claims to speak on behalf of God who doesn't really speak the truth of God is a false prophet, right? And many people have been misled because of false prophets. There are many who go to hell because they have sat under the teaching of false doctrine and have been deceived. That's true. But here's the real sobering thing. Many others go to hell who sat under the teaching of the truth and yet have never made a real commitment to Jesus Christ. These have deceived themselves into thinking that they are Christians. Folks, I'm convinced that the visible church across America is jammed full of people who are not saved and yet don't know it. They think they're saved. But the church across America, I am convinced, is absolutely jammed full of people who are not saved and yet don't know it. And I, I'm going to say something that may shock you. There are people in our church who fit this description as well. There are people, and I don't know who you are necessarily, but there are people in our church, I'm convinced, who come week after week, hear the teaching of the Word, they agree with what is being said, they even refer to Jesus as Lord, and yet they have never really made a true commitment to Christ. You know, in a Gallup poll I saw some time ago, it said 52% of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. Now, that's shocking because I saw another poll that says something like 85% of people polled said they were Christians. But these folks 
These would be what we would call evangelicals in a sense. Or they go to evangelical churches at least. They understand the term born again. And they call themselves born again Christians. 52%. Are you kidding me? I mean, when I hear statistics like that, I know there must be some kind of problem with the way people understand what it means to be born again. I mean, I don't know about your neighborhood. Do you think that 52% of the people in your neighborhood are born again Christians? I don't know what neighborhood you're living in. I know my neighbors. There's no way 52% of these people are born again Christians. You think 52% of the people you work with, you, you, know, you, you go to school with, etc., you think all those folks are really born again Christians? No, something is wrong. Something is really wrong. You know, Arthur W. Pink, author, said something that I think is really profound. He said, uh, and I quote, Never, where there's so many millions of nominal Christians on earth as there are today, and never was there such a small percentage of real ones. We seriously doubt whether there has ever been a time in the history of this Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within the churches who verily believe that all is well with their souls when in fact the wrath of God abides on them. And then he added, And we know of no single thing better calculated to undeceive them than a full and faithful exposition of these closing verses of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. End quote. That's why we have taken our time, especially through these last few verses, through this last section. Because this one really presses home the point, after all I've gotten done saying, Jesus is basically saying, all that pertains to the kingdom, are you really a member of the kingdom? Is what he's really pressing home. I mean, listen to what Jesus is saying here. I mean, it's really shocking. There are many people in churches that think they're saved, but they are not. As I said, this is the ultimate form of deception. It's self-deception. And the incredible thing to consider, (laughs) it's a mind-blower, is the description Jesus gives of these people. This is what really takes you back. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The first thing we see about these people is that they're orthodox in their faith. What do I mean? Well, they, they believe Jesus is Lord. And right here in this context, the word Lord, I believe, signifies deity. These are folks that don't just think Jesus was a great teacher. They believe He's God. They're orthodox. These people were not atheists, agnostics, or antagonists of the faith. They believed the right things and said the right things about Jesus. In fact, it goes on, Jesus says, they were even involved in ministry on the earth for His name's sake. Verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? The word wonders there is a Greek word often used of Jesus healing miracles. Of Jesus healing miracles. And this troubles a lot of people. When they read this, they go, wait a minute, I mean, what's going on here? These people are not going to heaven, but look at the ministry they were involved in. How could these people have not been True Christians who are being used by God. Well, there's three possibilities. I'll give them to you quickly. First of all, they were lying. Or at very least, they thought they had done these things. I mean, you watch some of these guys on TV. Now, not everybody on TV is a a false prophet, of course. 
But you know, a lot of these televangelists, man, they just this this section is them to a T. And I'm convinced if you were to talk to them, they're convinced that they're casting out demons and healing the sick every day of their lives. Talk about self-deceived, right? So, it could be that they thought they were doing these things, but really hadn't been doing them. Alright, number one. Here's another possibility. They did these things by the power of the devil. You say, what? what? Yeah, there are people out there who are involved in groups who do things they believe for God, but are really working for the devil. I remember reading a book about a young lady who thought she was a Christian. She called Jesus Lord and she got hooked up with a psychic healer because she wanted to help people. And the psychic healer helped her to um, develop her psychic powers and she began to heal people. Was that of God? Of course not. It was the devil using uh, his power to do miracles to take people down the wrong path. You say, does that happen a lot? Look, it happens more than you think. But it's going to ultimately happen with the Antichrist when he comes. Second uh, Thessalonians 2. The Antichrist is going to come and he's going to do lying signs and wonders. These are real miracles that are designed to mislead people away from the truth. So yeah, Satan does this kind of thing all the time. Or it could have been that maybe God did use these people to heal some folks and maybe cast out some demons, uh, even though they weren't saved. I mean, does God ever use unbelievers to do work through? What about Judas Iscariot? When Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, Judas went with them. He gave them the power to cast out demons, to heal the sick. Did Judas do that kind of stuff? He must have because they didn't all come back and say, we all did all this. Judas, I don't know what's wrong with him. He couldn't do anything, but we did it all. And no, he didn't stand out as a, a special case. I mean, you know, I mean, and yet Jesus told us in John's gospel, Judas never knew the Lord. I mean, can God use unbelievers to do his work throughout times? Yeah, he's God. He used the donkey in the Old Testament to speak through. That doesn't justify the ministry of donkeys by any means. I'm just, I'm just saying God is God. He can do whatever he wants. And we'll sometimes make exceptions to the rule. I mean, the word of God is living and powerful. If an unbeliever takes it up in their mouth and shares it with somebody else, I'm convinced people got saved through Judas' ministry. And I know firsthand people who were not saved when they shared the gospel with somebody else because they grew up in a Christian home and they knew the gospel. They shared it with a friend and that got, person got saved and the person who shared it wasn't even saved themselves. Okay. So first of all, these people were orthodox in that they believed Jesus to be Lord. Secondly, they were involved in ministry, as we have just said. And thirdly, they seemed genuinely surprised, actually shocked, that they won't be entering into heaven. Notice verse 23. He said, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. See, they say, Lord, Lord, right? Haven't we cast out demons and so on and so forth? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The reason that they're so shocked, I believe, is because they had based their salvation on what they knew, what they said, and what they did for Jesus. And no doubt, based on what, what group or organization or denomination they belong to as well. But they're shocked because they had based their salvation on what they knew, what they said, what they did for him. And yet Jesus will say to them on the day of judgment, depart from me, I what? I never knew you. That's important. Some people say, well, these guys were Christians and that's how they did these things. But then they turned away from God and lost their salvation. No. Jesus said, I never knew you. I don't believe a Christian can lose their salvation if they're really a Christian. But there's a lot of counterfeits out there. 
And some of them are in ministry. I told you I, I, I was at a pastor's conference one time, Calvary Conference. <laughs> and uh, we were sharing testimonies. And one guy got up there, an older gentleman, Calvary pastor now for many years. But he said, you know, I was a Methodist pastor for 14 years. And then I got saved. And now I'm a Calvary pastor. There are people out there who are serving God who don't know the Lord. That shouldn't come as a shock. They're in a lot of Christian seminaries, you know, liberal seminaries and so on. So Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, some people read this and go, it's not so unfair that the Lord would actually say this to them. I mean, why would he say this to these sincere, church-going, hard-working folks? Well, he tells us. He told them here, and he tells us, of course, that their faith was not saving faith. So a lot of folks who believe a lot of right things about Jesus, they have a lot of head faith, but it's not a commitment they made in their heart to the Lord. So they have faith, but not saving faith. How do we know that? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 21 again, He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, listen, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know, you can be very religious. You can go to church. You can be involved in ministry. And yet, throughout the week, it's pretty evident who you're living for. All right? I mean, you know, what you do on Sundays for Jesus is one thing. How you live for Jesus the rest of the week, uh, that's something very, very different. There's a lot of people who call him Lord, and yet they don't do the will of the Father in heaven. They call him Lord, but don't practice righteousness. They practice lawlessness. Jesus talked of these people in uh, Luke 6, uh, verse 46, when he said to a group of would-be disciples, you know, a lot of people followed the Lord who weren't really saved. At one point he turned to them and said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? See, the issue that Jesus is addressing here is obedience, isn't it? Obedience. Or, more precisely, the lack of it in the lives of so many who profess to know him. I mean, folks, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. When I say obedience, I'm not saying that he's talking about perfect obedience. None of us perfectly obey the Lord, right? We want to as Christians, but we don't always obey him perfectly. Jesus Christ is not talking about perfect obedience. He's talking about practicing obedience. He's talking about those people who, for the most part, want to live for God and yet blow it once in a while, as opposed to those who claim to know God and yet really don't have a desire to live for him seriously all week long. See, they don't practice obedience. They practice lawlessness or disobedience, regardless if they go to church. Now look, as we bring this to a close, don't misunderstand. I don't want to mislead you. This is not to be misunderstood to mean that Jesus is saying that obedience to him is what earns you your salvation. It is not. What he is saying is that obedience is really the fruit of true salvation and the new nature which God has planted in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Once God plants his nature in us, the moment we receive Christ, now we have the nature of God. The nature of God alone can bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Before that point, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Death can't bring forth life. Only life can bring forth life. And life only enters into us when we receive the Prince of Life, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. 
At that moment, we become partakers of the divine nature, Peter tells us. The Spirit of God moves in, and now the Spirit of God, who is life, begins to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit from our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 33, He said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. And that's very true, right? A tree is known by its fruit. You can't make it... You know, I love what, uh, what Paul said in Galatians 5. We looked at it last week. How he said the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He said against such there is no what? There is no law. In other words, you can't pass a law that says you've got to be joyful. You've got to be loving. You've got to have peace. Just like you can't pass a law that says oak trees now have to grow apples. I can go out to an oak tree and say, okay, listen, pal, we passed a law. You've got to start bringing forth apples. It's not going to happen. But a lot of people do that very thing. They are thorn bushes, Jesus said. You Can you gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Uh, they're a thorn bush. They're, a, they're a, a, a thistle bush. In other words, they're unsaved. Yet they hang signs on them that say, I'm a Christian. Well, you're not going to pick the fruit of the Spirit off of somebody who just labels themselves a Christian. It has to be real, right? It has to be rooted in truth. They have to be connected to the vine, Jesus Christ, which allows the life of Christ through the Spirit of God to begin to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. You'll know them by their fruit. It's very simple. I will have you turn to James chapter 2. Because James really hits this subject, I think, pretty hard and I think pretty sufficiently. In uh, James 2, we'll pick it up in verse 14. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if somebody says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Or in other words, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what is a profit? I mean, what kind of Christianity or faith is that? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, when Martin Luther read this, he wrote the book of James off as being non-canonical, non-inspired, because he thought James was teaching that uh, you had to have faith plus works to be saved. That's not what James is teaching. He's not teaching that faith plus works equals salvation. He's teaching that true faith produces works, which are evidence of salvation, is what he's saying. Verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And James is saying the very thing that Jesus Christ is alluding to in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in uh, the last section here. It's what Spurgeon said when he said, and I quote him, We are convinced that a man is saved by faith alone, but we are also just as convinced that the faith that saves a man is never really alone. He's saying the same thing. Spurgeon is saying, look, I know that it's only through our faith that we're saved. But true saving faith will always have fruit. There will always be the evidence. It will never really be alone. It will lead to a changed life. And a changed life contains changed actions, changed thinking, and fruit. Again, when you're born again, you receive a new nature. Now, how are you born again by faith? How do we know you have saving faith? Well, we don't. I mean... 
I can't look into your hearts. God can, of course. And he knows. The Bible says the firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who belong to him. He can look into the heart and see if a person has true saving faith or not. I can't. I've used this illustration before, but let me use it again. I've got a table up here, we'll say. I've got two pots. They have soil in the pots. And I say to you, one of the pots has a seed in it. I planted it in there. The other pot does not. Which one has the seed? The seed represents, we'll say, saving faith. He said, I don't know. I can't tell. I can't look into the pot and see. I don't have x-ray vision. I'll tell you what. Give me a few days. I'll take them outside, water them, let the sun hit them. And I'll tell you what. In a few days, maybe a week, I'll tell you which one had the seed because of what pokes its way up out of the soil. When a person says, I have saving faith, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, great. Is anything poking its way up out of your life? If your heart has got the faith, things should be poking their way up out of your life that are visible to everyone around you. And I'm thinking of the fruit of the Spirit, right? This obedience is one of the main evidences. And I say fruit of the Spirit, I also am talking about obedience to what God has said in His Word. But this obedience is one of the main evidences that the faith in our hearts is genuine, saving faith. Look, when I said earlier, it doesn't, it's not really a matter of what you believe about Jesus, what you say about Him, what you do for Him. What I'm saying is, yes, it is important what you believe about Jesus. I mean, you have to believe He's the Son of God. He, he, he died in the cross for your sins. The third day rose again bodily from the dead. Those are all essential doctrines for salvation. When I say it's not important what you believe, I mean head knowledge. It's not important what head knowledge you have. If it's genuine faith, it's going to be rooted in the heart in a commitment. But the idea is that if you really have that true saving faith, it's going to manifest itself in a life of obedience. Let me read one more scripture and we'll close. You don't have to turn there. 1 John 2, 3-5. through 5, Okay? Listen to what John said. And we can be sure that we know Him if we obey His commandments. Now, how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I know Him? Well, John says if you obey His commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar, or they might be self-deceived, and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's Word truly show how completely they love Him. That is how we know we are living in Him. How do we know? Because we love Him. How do we know we love Him? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my what? Commandments. That's why I say obedience is really the issue that Jesus is driving home in these last few verses. Obedience to what He has said uh, reflects a change in the heart. And that reflects a new creation has taken place. Look guys, and we're done, but let me just say this. This section of Scripture haunts me. I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but it haunts me. It haunts me to think that there are people in our church who sit here week after week and hear the truth, but have never really made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and on the day of judgment, they're going to hear them say, I never knew you. Now, that's a tragedy if that happens. I don't want them to look over at me, though, and go, why didn't you tell me this? That's why from time to time... I will revisit this subject, and today, of course, it's right in front of us in our text that we're working through. But you heard me talk about this numerous times. You, you know why I do it? Because I don't want anyone to turn to me on the day of judgment as they're standing before Jesus and he says, I never knew you. You practiced religion, but you didn't know me intimately. I mean, that's what he meant when he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Not that he didn't know who they were, he just never knew them intimately, the way you would 
know him when you receive him as your Lord and Savior. See, I don't want anyone to say to me, why didn't you tell me this? You let me go on thinking that I could be religious and do all kinds of good things and God would accept me. Uh, No, I don't want to have anyone look over at me and say that to me. That's why I take this section very seriously. And that's why I try my best to really sound the alarm. Because I have come across so many people who go to church, who claim to be Christians, and yet they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend without any sense of remorse or repentance. They're living an active homosexual life without any remorse or repentance. They are involved in all kinds of other immoralities or, or illegalities or a number... They are not really living for Jesus Christ in their daily life, and yet they think that they're saved. And Jesus Christ is trying to get their attention because, look, there is still time if you're alive. Of course, I'm assuming most of you are. If you're alive, there is still time to change, right? Once you die and stand before Him, you can't change them. Your fate is sealed. And so the best thing to do is examine your life Honestly, honestly, it doesn't matter what I think of you. I mean, I'm not the issue. God sees the heart. That's why the Bible says examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Judge yourself now so that you won't have to be judged by God someday. And how do you do that? Look at your life, man. I mean, look at the way you're living. Are you playing games with the Lord? Are you giving Him lip service, but your life is being lived in total disobedience to what he has said. If it is, you are probably, probably not a Christian. And you need to get on your knees now. Today is the day of salvation. Right now, get on your knees and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior in truth, renouncing the life of rebellion you're living, the sinful life, disobedience, and get your life right with Him. Turn it over to Him so that someday we can all enter into heaven together and rejoice. Right? I mean, you might be thinking, man, I came here, I was kind of uh, kind of happy, and now I'm all down, man. I mean, this guy made me uh, depressed. <laughs> Look, my goal is to not make you depressed when you come in here. It happens sometimes. Okay? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, it was Vance Habner, the old Baptist preacher, who used to like to say his ministry, he saw his ministry as comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. <laughs> sometimes I comfort the afflicted, today I'm afflicting the comfortable. Hopefully. Because I don't want to see you go to hell. I don't want to see you live out this horrific scene in heaven someday. When you stand before Him. Thinking that you're right with Him and you hear Him say, I never knew you. Can you imagine the horror of that day? No wonder they are shocked. It doesn't come through in the English. Lord, Lord. I mean, I would imagine they're screaming. I would imagine they're hysterical. Because they were self-deceived. The truth will set us free. You have to read it and honestly apply it into your life. Examine yourself and make that true commitment to Christ if you have not already. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your word, the light of your truth that lights our path, that we never stumble in darkness. And Lord, we pray for the myriad of people across this country and even across this world who are going to churches right now, some of them dead as doornails, some of the churches evangelical, and yet these folks don't really know you. They're basing their assurance of their salvation on their religious affiliation, the fact that they were baptized, confirmed, uh, they lit candles, they prayed the rosary, they 
They helped in the soup kitchen. Whatever it might be, Lord, they're basing their salvation on everything other than what you have said. And we just pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes, cause them to see clearly the way of salvation, what the narrow way is all about. It's about you, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that you will give us grace to be a light in the darkness, to stand for truth in these last days, to pray for those that we love that don't know you but maybe are religious. We just praise you, Lord. We love you. We ask you to keep blessing our studies in your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.